Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to episode five of New Retina Radio Back to Practice. And today we are going to be covering combating patient misinformation regarding COVID-19, how it impacts our retina patients, how it impacts society as a whole. And I'm fortunately joined today by two excellent guests. We have Patricio Schlotman, who is the Director of Clinical Research of the Medical Research Organization in Ophthalmology at the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina. And we have Nicole Eater, who is the Professor and Chair of Ophthalmology at the University Hospital in Munster, Germany. I'm John Kitchens with Retina Associates of Kentucky, bringing you this episode on September 25th, 2020. Just to highlight a few, um, unfortunately, grim milestones. Worldwide, we have 32 million cases of COVID-19 with nearing 1 million deaths globally. In Argentina, there are 678,000 uh, cases of COVID-19 with 15,000 deaths. In Germany, there are 281,000 cases of COVID-19 with less than 10,000 deaths. And unfortunately, here in the United States, we have 7 million cases of COVID-19 and we've just passed. 200,000 deaths. So with that, I'd like to get to my uh, guests and we will start with uh, Patricio. Patricio, how are things in Argentina from a COVID-19 standpoint? Hi, John, how are you doing? Uh, the situation here is the following. We're still in lockdown. So for many patients, there's still this restriction of movement. We have to uh, issue them a note so they can come to the clinic. So they specifically need these uh, sort of uh, permit to be out in the streets. Uh, the numbers, we have never had a peak. If you look at the curves of uh, cases and deaths, they were actually, they went straight up and then they stayed up for a while. And it's only now that they started dropping a little bit, but uh, we're still getting like 10,000 cases every day. And now we're getting about 250 deaths, maybe 300 deaths every day. It's sloping down, but it's sloping down very quietly but still in a relaxed, slightly relaxed uh, lockdown. Some things are reopening, but still you need a permit to be on the street. And is, is mask wear in Argentina pretty uniform, Patricio, or are people uh, not wearing masks? No, we didn't have any uh, issues with people wearing masks. There's a lot of people where everybody wears a mask. It's very rare to see somebody without a mask. I mean, you may see the odd person not wearing it properly, but most of the time this is because of lack of information how to use it, you know, keeping the nose outside or maybe they're smoking or eating and they just bring it down a little bit. But otherwise it's uh, fine. There has, we didn't have any issues with groups promoting the, you know, not using the mask. So. That has not been an issue, and that probably helped, um, you know, keeping the numbers, you know, not too high. We didn't have a peak, as I said before. And I noticed that Buenos Aires actually, uh, for a major urban center, city, um, really, or center, really has not had the majority of these cases at this point. It seems like it's more in the rural areas of Argentina, or it's about 50-50. What's your comments on that? I think it's moving. I mean, at the beginning, the rest of the country was like uh, a safe ground. There were no cases around, only in the big cities. Now we can see the big cities and Buenos Aires, as you said before, maybe compared to the U.S., it's not that big, but the population of the city is three to four million. But if you include the suburbs, the suburban area around it, 
it can go up to 15 million people. So 90% of the cases were there. Now we can see the numbers going down from that point of view in the city and surrounding areas, and the rest of the country started peaking. So I think that over time, you will see a, um, a coming down of the numbers of cases and deaths within the city and surrounding area, and the rest of the country start, you know, uh, flagging areas or other cities, you know, with uh, cases. But these are smaller cities, so I, I guess it's going to be easier or slightly easier to, you know, control this, um, this change in the area of uh, COVID. And what about you from an ophthalmology standpoint? Your department, um, is it back up and functioning normally now? No, we're working at, um, you know, maybe 50% of our, uh, the numbers of the patients that we used to see. Um, several patients delaying the injections, the operations, some of them not coming to the, um, to the clinics, to the consultation, to the normal consultation. So maybe at 50% of power we are working at the moment. And is that because of social distancing? Is it because of patients not wanting to come in? Is it because of government restrictions? What, what has you at that uh, reduced rate? It's a mix of both. We're trying to prioritize those patients. You know, if you call for uh, that you need new spectacles, probably we're going to delay your uh, consultation. But otherwise, if you're a patient that is in need of an injection or you have had symptoms, you know, that may um, point towards having a retinal attachment or a vitreous hemorrhage, of course, you're going to be called in. There's a lot of paperwork to be done. So we need to kind of write a letter, which would be, uh, something that you have to carry with you. You get stopped coming to the clinic. Uh, we need to make sure patients come uh, without the use of public transport because it is only restricted for certain personnel that they can use public transport. So they, can, they must be uh, drove into the city. So that makes a little bit of a complication for patients. It's not easy for them to come. And it's not easy for us to keep the no waiting area. We need to be very sharp with the timing so what we're doing is, uh, you know, have a no waiting area. The positive thing is that the weather is changing now. We're getting into spring here in the Southern Hemisphere. So the, the, the weather is getting warmer. So we can use our, you know, outside areas, which before it was just a decoration part of the uh, office. And now we're putting chairs so we can have our patients waiting in the open air. So they feel more uh, secure. They feel more secure if they're waiting in the open air rather than being in a room. But we never keep more than two or three patients in a waiting area. And surgically, are you able to do some of these semi-elective cases like epiretinal membranes, macular holes, or are those being deferred? No, no, no. Surgically, we can do whatever we need to. Yes, yes, yes. The issue is more with the patients coming, you know. As we're going to be discussing further, it's, you know, a lot of patients, they may believe that there's something in the air, you know, because they've heard it somewhere, the virus could be just outside in the air. So even if they come with a taxi to the office, they may just get infected because of, you know, breathing through the window of the car. So that is the highest restriction. It's not within the, we authorize to do whatever surgeries we need to do and see whatever patients we need to do. I mean, it's all, um, it's, the government leaves that decision to us so we can issue a permit to each of the patients. It's a, it's a lot of paperwork and takes a lot of time, but um, the restriction is more on the patient side of, you know, not wanting to come to the clinic 
and a little bit on the paperwork side of things that we need to do to see a patient. Nicole, turning to you in Germany, Germany has done an impressive job of managing COVID compared to other EU countries. What, how are things in Germany and what was it, what's been the key to your success? Well, um, uh, we, uh, we had a general lockdown starting uh, end of March until end of April. Um, we uh, saw what happened in Italy and Spain. I think they, the, the COVID problem was, was earlier in, in these countries. And um, so um, with that lockdown, we had enough um, free spaces for emergency cases, for intensive care patients and um, um, the um, units in the intensive care unit were expanded so that we uh, could cope with the patients. And um, so we, um, we also, we did not have this increase in numbers uh, as other European countries had. And uh, starting uh, May until July, I would say, the, the numbers were of, of COVID infections were really very, very low. And they are starting to climb now again a little bit due to the vacation. So um, the lockdown was over and then all the restrictions were finally eased. And uh, so people were allowed to, to uh, uh, fly or drive on vacation. And that uh, was when the, when the numbers were increasing again. And I know there's questions all the time here in the States about the validity of a lockdown versus the economic damage. And as I understand it, Germany is having those discussions now. Like, have you felt that there's been a lot of economic damage from having such a strict lockdown? And, and has it become a problem months later? Oh, yes, it has. I mean, uh, during that lockdown, um, um, basically, I, I mean, you could go out, um, you could, um, you, you, you could go to the supermarket. Um, but uh, other than this, uh, everything was closed, all the restaurants were closed. And um, so uh, especially little shops, also restaurants uh, are really now um, battling and and some already have, have closed uh, the doors forever. Do you think people will be amenable to a second lockdown if it's needed or do you think there will be major uh, political fighting if there is that suggestion? Well it's not only the fighting but it's also very very critical and I think the politicians uh, realize this um, and uh, right now it looks that it will not be a general lockdown again, but um, there are some hotspots. And, uh, and so there is a discussion uh, whether then for a county maybe, or maybe just a city, there will be other regulations than for the whole Germany. And this has, has basically also been uh, in the discussion because we are a federal, uh, uh, country, so there are different laws within the, uh, the the federal states. You know, I think in the United States, that's probably the one big misstep we had early on is when New York got hit very early and very severely and the rest of the country locked down. Um, and who knows what would have happened if we didn't do that, but it, it seems like many of the worsening cases occurred months later after the lockdown was lifted and that perhaps we didn't need to shut down the entire country 
we could shut down region by region. And I think in hindsight, that's the, would be the better way to do it. When you see an area pop up or starting to pop up, shut it down, you know, and that way you're not shutting down the entire economy uh, from, from that standpoint. Very politically divisive here in the United States, how this was handled early on and continues to be handled uh, presently. How are you doing from an ophthalmology standpoint? Are you back up to 100%? We are, in terms of uh, surgical cases, we are, again, at 100%. Um, if we look at our outpatient clinics, um, we have about 15% less because of the space in the waiting area. So we have to keep the patients away 1.5 meters uh, uh, at least. And so it's too crowded if we would have 100% uh, patients in our waiting areas. So I think that's the reason. It's not a medical reason. That's just uh, so that we can keep everyone really apart from each other. And surgically, you're able to do all of the elective cases, epiretinal exactly. membranes and those sorts of things. Exactly. Do you we do all the elective cases. Uh, again, during the general lockdown, the first weeks, we did only emergency cases and, um, and we did the intravital injections. Um, at least we offered. Um, however, we realized that patients were afraid of coming to the hospital. And uh, so we had about 25% uh, less injections, uh, not uh, just because the patients had maybe some misinformation or they, they were not sure whether they would be allowed to come or not. That's interesting. Let's dive into that. What, what kind of misinformation did patients have that prevented them from coming in to, to get their eyes treated? Well, we, you know, when, when uh, on TV you were told about this general lockdown, then patients, some of them called and said, well, you know, I have this appointment. Uh, can I come or uh, shall I stay at home? Um, we, of course, tried to, to reach all our patients um, by phone and and uh, either tell them to come if it's an uh, urgent case or um, stay at home if it was just an elective uh, control visit maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, so some patients could not be reached and so there was uh, a certain yeah, number of patients um, who were afraid to come. And Patricio, you had a similar type of occurrence where patients were afraid to come, but they actually were more afraid of, of the actual potential infection COVID through their eyes. Tell me about that. Yeah, there was a <clears throat> big fear at the beginning that, you know, you can catch it anywhere. They could just watch, um, you know, TV shows, doctors on TV, uh, sometimes giving the right message, but maybe misinterpret it possibly. So many of them, they were like, um, you know, I, I shouldn't go to the supermarket. I shouldn't go. Why would I go to the office? You know, uh, touching my eyes could be a source of infection. So, you know, they would not touch their faces or, you know, and why go to a doctor that is going to be touching my eyes? How can I be sure that this is, you know, clean enough and this is not going to be a, a point of entry uh, for the virus? So yes, we, we, we and the patients suffered a little bit from the uh, misinformation and also misinterpretation. Because, you know, sometimes you may try to pass on a message and, you know, it is not understood exactly in the way that you would like to, uh, you know, to transmit it and the patients take it maybe differently. It's nobody's fault, but uh, it ends up causing these uh, 
excessive fear and they end up not coming to the, uh, to the clinic, unfortunately. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, information about the COVID-19 potentially being able to enter through the conjunctiva, through the ocular surface side of things. Um, how did you dispel that with your patients? And is that notion still persisting or is, is it pretty much gone at this point? It persists a little bit, but what we try to do is, you know, we show them how we keep things clean. So everything is going to be clean, but when they enter the office, we do the cleaning again in front of them. So they can see the patient seeing the doctor getting the alcohol in their hands, uh, the equipment being cleaned by one of the assistants, uh, you know, they feel you know, we, we even clean the chair. So that's why the consultation takes maybe twice the time that it used to take. So we have to clean the chair. We have to clean the equipment, clean the OCT, all the devices that we use to check the eyes. So we make sure we do this in front of the patient. And that has been of a lot of reassurance for them. You know, it's not the same if they, it's not the same if they tell you, you know, this has never been open than if you actually wrap open the package yourself. So that gives a sense of, you know, this is clean and they feel more confident. When we finish the consultation, we, we, we clean again, you know, so they clean their hands and we wash the hands so they can, you know, feel totally reassured of the way we're working. That's, that's a great clinical pearl to do these things in front of the patient so that they actually, it demonstrates to them, hey, this is a clean area. Uh, and gives them that reassurance. Nicole, what sorts of things are you doing aside from the social distancing to help reassure your patients that, that their eyes are going to be safe as far as a port of entry for COVID? Well, from our um, hospital, general hospital setting, we have to call every patient uh, four days prior to the appointment and ask for COVID symptoms. And uh, so during that call, they can also ask us questions about uh, uh, you know what what protection do you can you offer us as a patient and um, uh, so so this the first contact now is is uh, via the telephone and um, then we have a restriction that um, people accompanying uh, the patients have to stay outside the hospital so so it's not getting too crowded and uh, uh, people see that you know every other seat is is covered by by a piece of paper telling don't sit here. Um, so so they really uh, notice that distancing is is something we we really keep up. And um, yes, all the these things that Patricia just mentioned, of course, gives the patient the confidence that everything's really really clean here. We have shields uh, at the slip lamp and, and also at the laser. So, so, so patients do notice that there, is, that there have been changes and, and of course disinfection is, is all over the place. But I must say that it's, it's not only, there are not only patients who are really afraid of COVID, but it's uh, on the other hand, there are also a lot of patients who neglect the fear of, uh, of the infection. And uh, those patients you really have to remind, you know, please wear your mask uh, and uh, wear your mask again and um, take care of this and that. So, so I, I think there are really both sides. Some are very much afraid and some are just neglecting it. You know, and that leads me right into my next line of questioning, which here in the United States, it's a political election year and we have a very contested election. And 
there is a lot of doubt arounding a variety of topics in regards to COVID, that the death rates aren't that high, that healthy people don't have to be worried, that masks aren't effective, that children don't get it or can't transmit it or don't get sick from it, which actually they may have lower rates of serious uh, adverse events from it. What types of misinformation are you finding in Germany, Nicole, that just makes you wonder where is this coming from? Yeah, well, thank God this is only a minority um, uh, of people, but uh, we had uh, two demonstrations in Berlin where, where crowds were on the streets and uh, pretending that COVID doesn't really exist and, and yeah, that everything is uh, just uh, exaggerated and um, uh, especially people were annoyed by the schools that were closed and, uh, and, and that had a direct impact, of course, on the family, especially on the mothers who had to stay at home as well and, and, and cope with the children. So, so a lot of people are angry and, uh, and uh, this uh, and, and want to, to uh, ventilate this by, by telling, you know, there is now such danger in COVID and everything's exaggerated. But, um, but this is only a minority. I think the, the majority in Germany is well informed by, by television, by the virologists. We do inform our patients. We get our information from the university virologist. And um, so I think the, the majority is well informed. And Patricio, in Argentina, are you finding the same thing that there are these conspiracy theories that put doubt as to whether COVID is harmful or masks work? And where are those coming from? No, we're not getting that much of that. I mean, we're not getting, uh, you know, these um, people believing that the masks are some sort of a political uh, thing that you have to wear or not. We did a lot better, and we are doing a lot better than neighboring countries. And, you know, a lot of people get the information from the neighboring countries, like Brazil, for example. They had lots of cases. The same happened to Peru, Chile. You know, it's, it's a country that is just on the other side of the mountains from Argentina, and they did really poorly there. So everybody wears a mask here, and it's not a political issue. I mean, there's a division in the country as well because of other political issues, but masks are not one of them. There has been a demonstration of people saying that this is not a virus, but there were like 20 people. So it just comes to show that people take the message very clearly. The neighboring countries are a good example of what can happen. Uh, if masks are not uh, worn. But we went through several stages with us as doctors. You know, at the very beginning, there were claps every night for the, those doctors were working, you know, seeing patients through the uh, pandemic um, situation. Then after that, that transformed into the bullying of doctors, you know, because nobody wanted in your uh, building if there was a doctor, they would just, you know, be cleaning the door on the outside because this is the guy or the lady that is going to be bringing the virus into our. So clapping turned into bullying. Then the cases start sparking, you know, and we could see cases everywhere. And now there's a bit of a sense of, you know, people locked down for a while and then they started opening a little bit, going out to the supermarket, buying things, resuming visits to the doctors. Uh, so there's no more bullying. There's no more clapping either. So we're, you know, kind of normalizing the situation. But the mask wearing, it actually has become a a, a, um, a trend 
you can see people wearing all sorts of uh, different masks, you know, uh, some of them very trendy, some of a uh, doubtable uh, taste maybe. But um, one thing that we do for our patients is when they come, now that we don't have a, sh a shortage anymore, we give them a surgical mask, just a basic one. Because some of them, they may come with a very poor, you know, handmade. So we give them one or maybe a couple, a few that they can take. There was a, so a shortage uh, way before, but not anymore. So we can share these with the patients and they feel very, uh, you know, they appreciate this very much that they can have a surgical mask. By no means, this is any better than the mask that they may be wearing, okay? It's enough what they wear, uh, but they feel, you know, they get the feeling that the doctor gave me this mask and that's another act of being caring for the health. That's a great point. And that, that's such an affordable thing to do for our patients. I remember I had a patient come in uh, about a month ago and she had fashioned a cut up sock into a mask. And it was so sad to think that this patient had so little that she had to take a sock and, and it was not a new sock and fashion it into a mask. And so I found her one of our masks in, in clinic that we had and gave it to her. And you would have thought that that was the most valuable gift she'd ever gotten. Um, so it's very small things that can, that can help our patients and, and go a very long way. Patricia, what is our role as retina specialists? You know, we're not virologists, we're not epidemiologists, but we do come into contact with at-risk patients on a daily basis. What should our role be in talking to these patients about COVID-19 and the risks? Well, basically what I discuss with the patients is that we don't know how long and how far this is gonna go. So we don't know whether this uh, pandemic is gonna be around, this coronavirus is gonna be around for maybe another 12 months maybe. Uh, cases are gonna drop, Cases are going to come back, as uh, Nicole just mentioned, you know, it's happening in Europe. So that is going to happen. Uh, we know that diabetics are patients at very high risk, and we see lots of diabetic patients. But I think our role is explaining them that despite what, whatever other interpretation they may make of the information they receive, that we are going to be uh, taking care of them in this way, so they are reassured that at least when they come to the clinic, this is not gonna be a dangerous situation for them, okay? This is gonna be a situation where everything is under control. If they wear a mask, we use full equipment, so we're fully geared uh, to see the patient. That is really uncomfortable, you know, you get the, uh, uh, it's difficult to use a sleep lamp or you know, any of the medical equipment that we need to use while wearing all this equipment. For the patients as well, you know, they get the, uh, they don't want to drop their mask, so it's difficult to go through a long procedure with that. So we reassure them that they need to take care of themselves. Uh, I put examples of patients that had COVID at my clinic, and uh, some of them actually died because of COVID. And I tell them that don't think that if you are sort of very healthy, you're going to do better. And if you are a frail patient and of certain age, you're going to do worse because actually we have examples quite the opposite. So, you know, don't believe that because you're too strong or you believe you're too strong, you're going to do better and stop taking care of yourself. So we do reassuring, re-explaining of things. And I try to limit myself to the things that are directly linked to, uh, you know, what they need to do on the daily activities at home and when coming to the clinic. 
all the rest of the things that would be too much to take. So I'm not going to be getting into other areas where they have different beliefs. So that is fine. Provided I make sure they understand the main things, uh, I'm fine with that. And Patricia, you mentioned that you are fully geared up. Are you wearing an N95 mask and a gown and a face shield? Yes, yes. That's the way we, I mean, I just take the, I remove the face shield, explaining them, I will remain, I will remove this face shield, I'll keep my mask because I need to, you know, get into this uh, uh, device so I can look at your eyes. There's always the breathing, you know, on the patient's side, sometimes they breathe and the, the air comes up, everything gets foggy because of that. So it's difficult to just, a basic thing like looking with a lens inside the eye, uh, just looking at the back of the eye, that may take a while. You know, you have to hold your breathing, ask the patient to, you know, bring the mask down a little bit so they don't breathe up and everything gets foggy. Um, while you put this lens against the face of the patient, you can feel the breathing in your uh, hands. So you have to wash your hands immediately after, clean the equipment immediately after. So it only takes more time. But I mean, if we are careful and we follow these steps, um, we, we will succeed in seeing all the um, patients with complicated cases, many of the others as well. Um, and, you know, hopefully vaccines will be around soon and they will work and we will have less and less cases. And they will be just, you know, this will be just something in the, in the past for many of us, hopefully. And Nicole, how are you handling the at-risk vulnerable patients? Let's say the patients who are nursing home patients who have COPD. Um, do you do anything different or above and beyond for those patients? Well, we do uh, a COVID uh, test before we uh, would admit those patients as inpatients uh, on the ward, uh, especially if, uh, if they come uh, from, from a nursing home. And, um, uh, and other than this, of course, if it's a high-risk patient, we would uh, isolate the patient in the room. Um, but uh, I think, I feel that nowadays it's getting back to, to normal. Of course, everyone is wearing a mask. Uh, we as doctors are only wearing a surgical mask, so not uh, an N95 mask. And uh, of course, there is a lot of disinfection and, uh, and, and keeping the instruments clean, but it's getting back to normal. It's rather that we now see the problems that this complete shutdown has caused because we are now seeing, for example, retinal detachments that are not uh, fresh detachments anymore. Um, and then patients tell us that uh, they had symptoms for a month or two and they weren't seeing, they're not seeing their ophthalmologist uh, right away. Usually in Germany, if patients feel some symptoms, they, they see the doctor right away. And uh, so they postponed the consultation and, and now we have much more PVR cases than, than we had uh, before. And do you think that they postponed their appointments with those doctors because of fear of COVID or was it because their doctors were, were shut down? Um, both, um, but uh, it's rather the, the fear of um, not uh, getting too close to a hospital or, or a, a practice and, and, and getting too close to the medical staff. Yeah. 
And is, is there a role for the retina specialist in trying to explain some of these, some of the misinformation about COVID-19 to these patients? Or as Patricio alluded to, look, our job is just to ensure that these patients are safe, make sure they know the facts that they need to know about being safe from COVID. And then beyond that, it's, it's mostly a political thing. Yeah, well, we, I'm, I mean, uh, we start with uh, the patient, with every patient usually was shaking the hands. And so uh, you tell everyone, okay, sorry, this is a Corona time. So, you know, and, and, and then you are already into the discussion. And uh, so, uh, but, but uh, you know, then it depends on what information the patient really wants to, to hear. And uh, in the last weeks, it's rather that patients are very well informed and they just cope on their, uh, their symptoms and they just want to, to, to receive your advice to, um, uh, due to the IDCs and, and not anymore to, to COVID infection. That is more a point if, if it comes to a surgery. Um, so then patients uh, will get some more information and they need more information on, on uh, yeah, how, how sh should they get a test or um, things like this. Um, but the normal outpatient um, is back to normal right now. And uh, where do you get your information about COVID-19? Do you try to stay up to date? Is it news sources? Is it medical journals? Or is it your colleagues in medicine or in retina? Mm -hmm. Well, we are at a university hospital setting here. So we have uh, the Department of Virology. And we have regular, on a regular basis, we have hospital conferences. And uh, then we get the new information um, so that's every two to three weeks that we get new information on what should we do, um, what kind of protection shall we use, and things like this. And uh, of course, the TV is so you know it's uh, uh, all over uh, um, information on COVID, and uh, of course also the journals. And Patricio, same question to you. Where are you getting your information from? Do you follow and try to keep up daily, weekly? How does that look? We try to get information from two different sources. One is having an idea of what's going on worldwide. So, you know, what's going on, what is being done. So maybe we can pick up some ideas from there. That would be from different journals or, uh, you know, websites that offer a trustable source of information. Uh, you know, the CDC from the US is something that we look at, uh, which is, you know, very good for providing good information for doctors and for patients as well. It comes in several languages, so patients can access that as well. We, for local information, we do a kind of, it used to be a weekly meeting. Now we do it every, you know, every 15 days. Every two weeks, we get a meeting with a local specialist that will be releasing information of what is being done, you know, what's happening at the local biggest hospital, you know, the amount of cases, the amount of uh, beds available. And we try to release some of this information to the patients, not only talking to them, but also giving them a little leaflet, you know, so the patients can take with them a bit of information that they can read, you know, that is updated, you know, what to fear, what not to fear, what should you do with these and that. And little by little, we are educating our patients and giving them the best information available. Uh, you know, and we're doing a better job and transmitting this to the patients. So, Local information from local sources and international information, 
we are months behind what happened in the US and Europe, so we can learn from them, uh, you know, to try to avoid some mistakes that were not just mistakes, but lack of experience because it's a new virus, right? And it sounds like you've done an outstanding job of actually learning from others' mistakes, uh, ours, Europe's, and, and even uh, in uh, regional countries in South America that had worse cases. What's the status of a vaccine in Argentina? We have several trials of the uh, main vaccines um, happening here because of the high numbers of cases in the city. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good ground to test the vaccine. Many of the doctors are participating. Most of the time we try to include patients in clinical trials. Now we end up being part of a clinical trial as patients because we are highly exposed. So we will be, you know, a, a good population. So many, many of the doctors are taking part in these uh, clinical trials, you know, getting the, um, the sort of either vaccine or the uh, placebo. And we will see over time what happens. But many of the big vaccines, you know, from Pfizer, uh, the, the Chinese one, the one from Astra, Oxford, all those three vaccines are being tested here within the city. That's fantastic. Nicole, same question for you. What's the status in Germany of vaccine testing? Yeah, well, there are trials uh, going on, but um, uh, I think the, the general opinion is that it will last until next autumn, until we would uh, really have a vaccine for yeah, the whole population. You know, and you led right into my next question and my last question, actually. Um, here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're starting to head into winter. Nicole, in Germany, how do you think this is going to play out over the next six months? Yeah, so we have already experienced also due to vacation and due to uh, um, uh, less restrictions that the numbers are increasing again. And I think in Europe, we are uh, expecting a second wave. And, um, uh, and, and now uh, since uh, all these uh, outside areas are, are closed and it's getting colder um, uh, and people will face uh, more restrictions again. So there is a big discussion on whether the restaurants can now cope with the situation or shall there be heated outside areas so that uh, people can be separated uh, still. So yes, uh, it's getting autumn, it's getting winter, and uh, we will face more problems with that. And Patricio, the same question, but kind of in a different light, you're getting ready to head into summer now, where we had had hopes in the spring that it would curtail the virus. Unfortunately, here in the United States, it really kind of took off. Much of that related to July 4th and vacations and group gatherings and lifting of restrictions. How do you see this playing out in Argentina and in South America as we head into the warmer months? Well, what you described, John, happened also in Europe with, you know, the numbers going down, people going to, you know, the beaches, going around, traveling all around Europe. And then you can see Italy, you can see Spain and France picking up again, even back, even the UK, picking back to the same amount of cases that used to have at the peak of the, uh, of the uh, season. So I'm sure we're going to be learning uh, from that experience. We're going to be dropping the numbers, but by the time we hit the summer, which will be like December, January, uh, there's going to be a lot more staycation rather than vacation. So hopefully people will stay, uh, not make these mistakes that were done in Europe. We can learn from those 
and we will probably try to go through the summer in a better way, hopefully getting nearer to the time of a vaccine uh, available, hopefully. You know, you're absolutely right. And I think we can learn from some of our, our brethren in the Southern Hemispheres. You look at New Zealand and Australia and certainly Argentina, you weathered winter already uh, in the midst of this and actually came out fairly unscathed. So I want to thank both Patricio and Nicole for joining me today. It's been a fantastic discussion about how we deal with the, with the misconceptions surrounding COVID-19 and a variety of other things. And I want to thank our listeners for joining in uh, on this episode five of New Retina Radio Back to Practice. Join us in the next couple of weeks as we have our next episode. Patricio, Nicole, thank you and stay safe. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.